Meryl always hides the truth in plain sight. Look what's beneath him. An entire cosmos as above, so below. Come on, guys, that's what that means. Now, how do we get there? Obviously, there's an entry point at the South Pole, but it's likely he discovered other portals as well. There could be one here in Long Beach. And so then that means that the True Lodge is inside the hollow earth. Yes. Connie, good to see you. Oh, hey, guys, this is Clara. She's... Uh, let me guess. She's your new lover. No. She's a friend from London, a traveling knight. Ah, forgive me, Connie. It was my understanding that you have many lovers. I'm sorry, do I know you? Hmm. You know my work? I do. Connie, this is L. Marvin Metz. Holy shit. The guy who writes those horrible thrillers. Horrible, Connie. No, 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 Ernie, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. My muscular style alienates female readers. That's why I publish Erotica under the pseudonym Melonia Delacroix. Are you serious? Mm. You wrote The Heiress of Zanzibar? <laughs> I read the entire sextet. What? They're fun. Genuinely stimulating. Welcome to Pod 49, a Lodge 49 fan conversation podcast based on the AMC Network show. Of course, we are in week two of Jim gallivanting across the European continent. So like we had Mark last week, we brought in Nate to join and take a crack at the third chair. Welcome, Nate. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. And Bart, how are you doing today? Uh, good, good. Ready to go. All right. We got a lot to discuss. We're, we're sort of screaming down the, the back nine at the municipal course here on season two. And so before we jump into some other stuff, let's do a round of hot takes. Bart? Okay. Uh, I got a hot take that is, uh, it's not about the episode, but maybe about the show in general. And I think I'm going to probably make some enemies by saying it. Maybe even you included, but I was been it's been kind of coming into my head for the last couple of weeks, I guess, and I kind of finally spit it out like yesterday. But I feel like this show is like the inverse opposite of Lost, where Lost had a a bunch like it had a lot of uh, bells and whistles and tricks up their sleeves and all that kind of stuff, and they had and I basically kind of hate that show because I felt like it didn't deliver. And it felt like I was in some form of pyramid scheme where they kept introducing more things. But I was yet, I kind of had to sit it out to see where it went. And I felt like the ending was really disappointing. And also, I think a lot of the uh, character relationships were a little bit uh, manufactured in a way. Whereas this show, the character development is obviously much more organic, more natural. Um, It's obviously on a much deeper level. And it's not... it's not required to show like the receipts. It has like a very magical element to it. We're all kind of very curious about what the scrolls are and where that's going. And it's a great hook with the show, but the reveal isn't as, uh, it's, it's not so necessary to kind of have a giant reveal. And so very often in the show, the reveals are sort of more humanistic or something. It's not an actual gimmick, but the reveal is that the character sort of grows because of what they learn through the situation. So I feel like it's 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 like a much better version for all those things that you kind of you liked about Lost that kind of hooked you into it. This has a very similar dynamic, 
but with a much more honest payoff. And that's my hot take. <laughs> we can debate loss later. Although I will say, <laughs> you, you don't you don't get a chance for Lodge Forty Nine to do that without lost as a uh, beforehand. But whatever. Okay, Nate. great. Okay, great. But also, I would say also by the way, just like the, in terms of like the show's budgets and all that kind of stuff. You know, it was like just such a more flashier, hollow version, you know, and now we have like a real genuine article. Dude, they were doing a literate multi-season complex show on ABC. Okay, so like, you know, you, you could not like the end, but to deny what it achieved is ridiculous. Nate, your hot I, take? Well, my hot take definitely Nate agrees with me, by the way. a little bit with Bart's because I had some serious problems with the show lost as well. And I thought that, um, the writers, no pun intended, got completely lost in the weeds and ended up doing a really bad job at finishing what they started. And so my hot take for this week is that I think this episode in some ways is almost like this meta episode for viewers who are starting to ask some of those questions the week before, or two weeks ago, we got really deep into the mythology of the show and it brought up all sorts of mystical elements and, you know, much more magical realism. And it opened all these doors that once you walk through them, I think it's extremely difficult to get your way back out. And I felt like this episode brought things back down to earth in a very essential way. And I kind of saw Lamar and the presence of Lamar, who is a fantastic character, and I hope they continue to have him be part of the show. But the idea that, like, his books, which were these tomes that Ernie found so important and other members of the Lodge found so important, you know, he's, like, they're revealed to just be absurd. They're revealed to be almost, you know, the work of a man in the midst of mania, And I almost felt like in a lot of ways, this was this cautionary episode that was like, don't read too much into this, you know, lest you go insane like Blaze. Not that these mysteries aren't fun. I know we're going to talk more about that idea later, but that was, uh, that's my hot take that this show is, is almost designed in a way to bring the viewer back down to earth, ground them a little bit more. And it combines very nicely with last week's episode, which was all about one-on-one human relationships and had nothing to do with um, the more fantastical, mystical, esoteric elements of the show. The celebration of the mundane. But this this was a little bit of a blending of the two, but I also thought that there were just... I, I really enjoyed how um, a lot of it was, you know, kind of exposing the absurdities of a lot of this stuff. Jim brought up a point about, like, uh, we were talking about alchemy... And how it's really, it, alchemy itself, because you can look up a lot about the actual technical things of it, but the overall idea of alchemy is to is to be like a warning that like it's a fool's mission to try to create gold. It's like right. by definition you're already on the wrong path because right. you're kind of, you want something that you, I guess, shouldn't want, but obviously it's enticing. Right. And so like I think that's a great point that you're making because it kind of like reflects I. What I didn't know that because I didn't know that much about alchemy, but Jim was talking about it, and I thought that was very interesting. That is, it, it, the study of alchemy isn't itself like a cautionary tale. My hot take is similar in that it's a more meta hot take uh, rather than a particular reaction to the episode that we just watched, and that is that one thing I love about the show, and one thing I've noticed, especially in season two, 
is that it doesn't believe in villains. You know, even when it plays with archetype villains, whether that is Janet or a version of Scott or last season, even with the version of, of Captain, any time, even from the show's own point of view, right? Like Captain of, in- Captain of Industry, shamanistic business leader, even archetypes of the show would definitely agree are damaging or villainous or not positive. It takes a lot to actually give those characters full-fleshed reasoning, builds empathy for their characters, and really has no interest in, you know, kind of good versus evil villain archetypes that, you know, somehow our heroes have to somehow overcome. And so I think this week, Scott's always been sort of an ill-cast villain, but, you know, a villain nonetheless in the Lodge construct and the and the idea that this is a villainous character is is ridiculous and laid bare previous to this episode, but really into this episode. And you could do a similar breakdown of any and all of our starting off cartoon villains, which they do do, which I think is part of their setup that they really don't believe in that that kind of villain dichotomy, hero villain dichotomy that most narrative does. They re- reject Joseph Campbell, I guess. Hmm. ultimately. I think that's a really good observation and I've never really thought of it that way. And I, I think when you compare it to so much of what's on television, say for example, like Succession or like, I don't know, you know, like Eastbound and Down, all of these shows, which I really like, these are, you know, these are fundamentally bad people. They are awful people. And we watch these shows because we want to see the humanity in these people. With Lodge 49, these are These are ordinary, decent, good people going through their lives, and yet their struggles are just as compelling, and their struggles are just... I mean, obviously, there's a dose of this esoteric aspect to it, but the people themselves are very, very compelling, and they don't need to be dastardly. We don't have to work from this hole of, like, villainy to see their humanity. Their humanity is is up front from the get-go, which I I think is a really interesting take, yeah. And that doesn't doesn't divorce them from... The fact that they may cause negative consequences, right? It right, or make bad choices, yeah. or what have you. Right. Yes, absolutely. Funny now you mentioned it. I was thinking about how when my kids were watching TV, and like I was hoping that I could avoid things with like guns in it and stuff like that. You know, a lot of the, but it's, and I realized how difficult it is. And I'm not trying to be too whatever the word is, but uh, too progressive or something like that. But I just sort of, I just kind of was hoping to kind of avoid them from that sort of violent of it you know but I mean of course that's what like Pokemon is all about but I, I sort of realized that how much of the TV of, of all these shows and I know I'm talking about kids shows but then I realized it kind of extends into a, sort of what we're talking about it always has to pit like a good versus a bad there's always like a battle and a winner and a loser you know and it seems to be a very I, I only because I started paying attention to it that way I noticed just how prevalent it is and I think you're right, Chris, that this is like a very, very good exception from that norm. But it doesn't lose any of its edge, so to speak. No, not at all. I mean, it, characters are really compelling. They go through a, a lot. I mean, just what you sort of learn about them are really deep, tough things. I mean, that story with Ernie, you know, having a daughter for a year. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's real stuff. I mean, we don't, it doesn't need to be, you know, too fantastical. You could like, you know, it can just be things that happen to have ordinary people, which put them in positions that are, you know, uh, in like literary sense, you know, the same equivalent of like the hero, the bad guy. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The hero and the bad right. guy. We'll put a link in the show notes, but a great essay 
by Emily Nesbaum. It's years old now about the uh, bad fans, which is was basically around the Tony Soprano, Walter White version of this, which is, Nate, you know, just the sort of original, the OGs of this idea. She wrote a great essay about about that and um, kind of looking at some of these of these issues in the era of the anti-hero hero. All right, Bart, of course, let's give credit where credit is due. Who are some of the creative people that helmed this episode? Uh, okay, we got the same director from last week, Maurice Marable. And w- one of the writers that was credited last week, it looks like gets the full credit for this week, Micah Craddy. And that that's all that lists. That's all that's listed. All right. And we've had to start recording a little bit earlier than usual uh, for some good reasons. We're going to have some more and more guests from the creative team of the show coming on. In fact, when this when you'll be hearing this, you'll have already had a chance to listen to the Olivia Sandoval interview. So go find that. But that's meant that we've had to be <laughs> recording a little earlier than usual. And that means we do not have the song list from Thomas Patterson up on TuneFinder. So um, we will we'll put those in the show notes as well um, and get you that information because the music is phenomenal. And it's always Andrew Carroll who is working on the score for for the show. All right. As you know, we like to take some different cracks at how to do recaps. We're not sure if we've get, we're getting it right. We're not sure what the right way to do it. All of you other TV recap podcasts play around with different styles, so we're no different. So this week we thought the big propulsive element of the plot was obviously that we have a, a significant number of our main characters on route to Mexico. Not all of them. Not all of them. I don't see Champ or, or Jeremy in a car, for instance. But a large chunk of important characters are in transportation vehicles on their way to find the schools in Mexico. So we thought we'd kind of do it by vehicle um, and sort of bring us to where we got everyone or a lot of people ending up at the same place at the end of the episode. Oh, wait, what was this episode called, Bart? Oh, right. Uh, Zugzwang. Zugzwang. Zugzwang, right. A a chess term for you uh, chess nerds. position in chess where every move you make is the wrong move and your situation... It's worsens. Yeah. They, it's it's over even though you're going through it. Right. You can continue to make moves, but nothing is going to be Change. for your betterment. Yeah. All right. Well, with Zugzwang at our backs, uh, I am going to take I'm going to take the sensible sedan. I'm not quite sure what kind of car it is, but uh, you know, kind of your ad- average run of the mill. I need a car cars. And that is with Clara, Connie, and Scott on their way to Mexico to find the scrolls. This this was a, a probably our shortest in terms of those as a group as a threesome. It really came up right at the end. But the real narrative arc here is Scott. Basically, Scott comes to grips with his ending marriage, his failure in many aspects of of life, and he he locks himself out of the out of the lodge after he. <laughs> I love the callbacks, right? He's cleaning out the grease traps, which no one else wanted to do, and that he thinks is essential. It ends up <laughs> stinking horribly, you know. And so he has to tr- throw his clothes away. And I love mm. how the director is just so obvious, right? Like, camera shot keys, camera shot closing door. Like, I love the non <laughs> non subtlety of that, which is Scott <laughs> in general. So he gets locked out in his um, in his uh, robes, sovereign protector robes. And he kind of goes on this great, drunken, angry rampage. He's given a bottle of, I don't know, you know, whatever gut bucket wine from a, a, a homeless drunk. And uh, he just, you see him in all these Long Beach settings, just kind of in various stages of drunkenness and anger. 
my, my absolute, one of my favorite just mini, mini scenes of the whole season will be that football coach and then him screaming into the tackling dummy. That was just <laughs> beautiful. And so, and it winds up drunk and passed out on the lodge floor. Meanwhile, Clara, a.k.a. Uh, what's her M name? Um, Melinda. Melinda. So Clara, a.k.a. Melinda, makes her way to Lodge 49, convinced that there is something about the scrolls and Lodge 49 that the true Lodge needs to investigate. She admits to Connie that she is also just a cog in a machine and she is has people below and above her and is not some kind of, and Melinda either, some kind of ultimate voice of the true Lodge or even Lodge 1, that she is... Got a mysterious part, mysterious part to play, and she's paranoid about her position, which is actually what motivating her to go and grab the skull, scrolls. And so her and Connie team up again. And then as we move through this, we get Connie and uh, Clara with some great scenes at the lodge with the van crew. We see a, a budding spark between Lamar and Clara. Uh, some great lines and some really great body acting between the two of them. Their their uh, hug when they separate was, I mean, the way Paul Giamatti grabs onto her. And she's not a short woman. She's very tall and Giamatti's not a tall man, so it's just a great visual joke there as he's just, like, grabbing onto her in a non-creepy way and, mutual, and mutually accepted, but, by the way. Really? I, it, I, I, I don't know. It's like he's, like, almost smelling her, you know? Like oh, it's definitely he, weird, when he was but about she's to get into, into the it. Van? Oh, yeah. yeah, she is clearly okay, yeah. feeling what he's feeling. Yeah, yeah. That, it, it can be creepy and consensual. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess I didn't notice that it was as consensual, yeah. but I guess I... I guess I kind of I did know that she it does seem like there's a budding relationship there so yeah, yeah I guess it's fine but he was definitely uh, and so we some, get someone who hasn't ejaculated in 10 years yeah we get Scott <laughs> we get Scott in a moment of self-realization that his whole myth about himself has come crashing down and just at that moment Clara and his Connie recruit him and something about the ridiculousness of the quest and losing self to gain self motivates Scott to jump in his car and they are en route to look for the scrolls like everybody else. Give us your vehicle. Uh, okay, I'm taking the limo with uh, Liz, Janet, and Tarquin. Yeah, so a lot of Liz and Janet this week. Uh, we start off with uh, we get to see Champ in a suit. He is, I guess, Liz's uh, under secretary or something like that, and he brings her this uh, bobblehead doll that he believes could be a bomb. And then uh, Liz has this great line in that scene: uh, "The less you, I think, in corporations, the less you do, the more important you are." Yeah. Oh, like, <laughs> but the best part of that is when Champ just goes, "Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like couldn't agree more." You know? Yeah. Um, and then of course Liz, it goes, she's, she's in this room where Janet has like a giant picture of her face on the wall and like a, um, like a walking or whatever the treadmill where she's like walking constantly. So they do a lot of talking in that room or whatever, um, between Liz and Janet. Liz has her lurid self-awareness, um, that Janet admires. And then it's it's when Liz kind of gets the hint that there's maybe something not so right with Omni West. At the time, Janet kind of sort of denies it or whatever. And then they sort of, she sort of opens up to Liz a little bit. They go for a walk around the beach. They're sitting on the bench. We get that really great story about how Liz ran away for two days when she was 10 years old and how she didn't really mean to, she didn't realize what she was going to do, but she obviously terrorized Dud. 
that he had to check on her every night for a year. And then they decide to get some frozen yogurt. It's like uh, Janet's trying to loosen up a little bit. As the episode goes, she kind of loosens up a little bit more. And then she wants to, you know, do things that the normal people do, like get some frozen yogurt. So then they're back watching TV. And now she's like, that's something that she's not really used to doing. And that had a great line, too, where um, she said, uh, mother and father always said that TV thwarts ambition. And Liz says, yeah, yeah, it does. (laughs) And like as if it's a positive thing, which I kind of do think I, you know, like ambition is a is kind of a terrible thing in many ways. And then there's also this great scene where. Liz like laughs at something on the TV, and Janet wants to be like part of it, so she does this imitation of oh, Liz's yeah, laugh. Yeah. That was <laughs> she just completely like emulates it, like without knowing. Yeah, but it's like a really <laughs> awkward. It's like someone who doesn't know how to laugh. It's a really <laughs> funny scene. She's like, <laughs> and like the way her face looks. Yeah, she's like, like looking at Liz. It's like, is this correct? Yeah, is this the right way. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was that was a great comedic. I, I was talking about all the physical comedy on the show that I really liked, and that's another one for the... Oh, um, you ta- can I just cut in and say, since you're talking about physical comedy and these th- these characters, my favorite piece of uh, physical acting, physical comedy, was definitely Tarquin's Use My Back as a Writing <laughs> <Yeah>. Desk. <laughs> Which, just the concept is funny of itself, but the way he pulls it off with like almost... You know, almost like changing like a standing desk to a sitting desk, right? It had the same kind of like Ikea elbow movements <laughs> that you would, you know, in a piece of furniture. It was brilliant. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, yeah, that was fantastic. And then basically, uh, oh, so then Dud comes in and with his big bag of, uh, it's toilet paper, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that's one of my favorite paper towels. Recurring sight gags. No, it, it's toilet paper. And I think it, it's the same. I don't know if it's the same. But he brought like bulk toilet paper with him when he first moved in with Liz and last season, and he just carries it with him wherever he goes. He brings it to Larry's uh, trailer. Yeah, doesn't she, when Liz like kicks Mexico, him out, kind of he takes it with he him. Takes when it Liz with him, like he's taking his contribution. It's like all he has. Yeah. yeah, it's like I'm taking it back. Yeah, I just I love. Fine, that. then you don't get my toilet paper yeah. then. And so yeah, he walks in with that. It's really funny, and that's when Janet learns of the scrolls. So that's that's and that's kind of important because then like toward towards the end, um, Liz is back in that room with Janet, and um, Dr. Kimbrough comes back, and we learn that basically Janet's under investigation by the FBI. That Omni is kind of like a house of cards about to come crashing down, and uh, Janet admits that she basically brought Liz along to kind of try to sw- body double switch with her and have her take the fall, and Liz is like, and Liz is kind of like are you serious? You know? And then she's like, but it's going to be fine because we're going to go to Mexico. We're going to get the scrolls and we're going to make Bitcoin and we'll, we'll pull out of it that way. And, uh, yeah, then they, they get in their limo. They're going to fly there. Um, they open champagne, hits Tarquin in the, in the head, knocks him out (laughs) cold and they're on their way. As he ignites creme brulee. (laughs) Oh yeah. Right. I love that part. I think, I think incorrectly even. No, I think that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's how we did it at the restaurant. When we had creme brulee, <laughs> same exact thing. Just torch it right there. All right, Nate, we're giving you our uh, newcomer, the heavy lifting with the, I don't know, what combination mythical creatures van? Custom van. Right, so the van is sort of divided into two sets. You've got Dud and Ernie who sort of start the show off. Or uh, Well, the show starts off with Blaze at um, his rest area. I forget what the name of the place is. And that's where he encounters Lamar. And they 
sort of create this pairing for the rest of the show. They start playing Uno together. I believe there's a great line where he says, let's Uno. And um, they start working on their relationship. And then Dud starts working with Ernie. He actually takes the place of uh, Speedy on the orders desk. And their relationship is developing there. And then they go to visit Blaze. They're immediately starstruck by Lamar. And Blaze is, you know, sort of in this state right now where he's taking stock of everything that's happened. And uh, he's sort of hanging back a little bit. Lamar is still very much invested in, in all of his ideas about the Lodge and about, you know, the truths of um, Harwood Fitzmerrill. They have some revelations down the road, but they start hanging out together. They go to Ernie's, and that is where uh, this idea of the hollow earth is introduced. Lamar believes that that the true secret of the Lodge, the true secret of the Lynx, Harwood Fitzmerrill's true revelation is that the earth is in fact hollow and that there is a whole world within a world, which is a theme we see a lot in this show, the lodge within the lodge, the books within the books, and now in this case, a literal world within a world. And um, what's interesting, I think, about that particular statement is you can see uh, Dud and Ernie kind of taking a step back a little bit from Lamar and being like, is this guy playing with a full deck here? Um, And they're trying to make sense of this world within a world, hollow earth theory. And uh, just as a quick aside, I actually looked up some stuff about hollow earth theories, which uh, were actually quite popular in the 19th century at the same time that sort of uh, esoteric philosophy and uh, the, uh, you know, sort of like occult was like more mainstream. There were a couple famous practitioners of this. The original hollow earth theory was actually developed by Edmund Haley of uh, the Comet fame. (laughs) But uh, there was this guy, John Sims, who believed that... There was this paradise within, and we were surrounding it. For the purposes of the show, what I think is interesting about his theory is he believed that there were entrances at the North Pole and the South Pole. Mm. And if you'll recall, there um, is a lodge in the South Pole, and there's you know, sort of work being done there, investigations being done there by Orbis. And then there was this guy, Cyrus Tweed, or Cyrus Teed, rather, who was, um, he was an eccentric and a, and, a, and a cult leader and an herbalist and also a self-identified alchemist in the 19th century who uh, believed that we were living, that, that we existed inside of the earth already. And that when we looked up into the sky and we saw stars, that was actually uh, ice from the outer layer of the earth. So anyway, there's a bit of a uh, hollow earth aside there. That's pretty awesome. Oh, and one thing on that exact topic is that blaze does early in the season, like episode one or two, when he's talking to dud about being his apprentice, he, he says, Meryl believed a lot of weird stuff, right? Like the hollow earth. So he, it's a dismissive theory of Meryl's by, but it's been there all along. Yeah. But, but but it does like plant like a mini seed. Yeah. Yeah. So in the course of interacting with Lamar, they bring Lamar to the lodge. That's where Dud and Ernie have their conversation about these theories. And this is where we see Dud sort of, I think, coming to his own conclusions about what all of this means. And he has this revelation about how, you know, Blaze is the Lodge and that, you know, people are where we want to be. And this is where also um, Ernie introduces his idea, or he really embraces this idea of the show, the, um, sorry, how do you say it again? Zugzwang. 
And he basically has this outburst where he's saying, look, we're the kinds of people who no matter what we do, we're not going to improve our lot in life. No matter what choices we make, we are where we are, or we just make matters worse, or things become more entangled. So why not make the most crazy choice? Why not follow yourself and make the choice that seems like the most irresponsible or it seems the zaniest and just see where it goes because no matter what that choice is, there's going to be a problem. And that is what prompts them to then go seek the scrolls, not necessarily for the purposes of, you know, unlocking these mysteries of Bitcoin or of the lodge, but just because it's the craziest idea and Lamar loves it. They also think that it's going to help blaze. So blaze agrees to come along. Lamar agrees to fund it as long as he can bring his muse who I, I loved this, this, you know, this ethereal French being in the background. I wish uh, I knew how to speak French so I could determine whether what she was saying was gibberish or not. But uh, yeah, so they load up into the van and they head down to Mexico for the second time now for Ernie. And I think that about sums that up. That's right. And as you just, I'm sure most of you know, El Confidente and uh, so he's already there. Yeah, and Dud's ex-lawyer. What was her name? Daphne. Daphne. Yeah. Daphne. They are already there. So there are, are actually already characters that either are there or on their way there. Awesome. That was a cool... Uh, that, thank you, Lodge 49 Plot, for giving us such a clear way to do the recaps this week. Yeah. Nate, as our newcomer, you really got us off on a really interesting theme for our longer form conversation here. Uh, that'll weave in, obviously, the show and this episode, et cetera, and our... Uh, worldview on life, I guess. And uh, so you want to set that up for us? Well, one of the themes that I saw as I was watching this week was that there are all these different people who believe they have the answers to a variety of things. They actually don't, but they sound very compelling when they're saying it. And you look at Janet in particular, she kind of represents this corporate nonsense that if you're not listening very closely, it sounds very intelligent. It sounds very important. It sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like things that you don't understand because you're not supposed to. And, you know, that is in a lot of ways, that's the essence of the Lodge mythology. There are all these mysteries behind the Lodge mythology. You also have these extremely long, extremely dense novels that that um, you have to continue to read them to get to know them. You can't read them out of order. This is, of course... Lamar's series, the name escapes me, I wrote it down, um, the Europa Nights series. But then you also see throughout the course of these episodes, these things kind of falling apart. When it comes to Janet, this is literally all falling apart. It, it, it's a house of cards. She says as much that you know she can't talk her way out of, she, she can't TED talk her way out of what is essentially a failing company. You see with Lamar that these books are a product yeah, certainly of a creative mind and certainly of a creative genius, but he's sort of written himself into a hole. His publisher thinks that his books are turgid and repetitive. So, you know, just sort of seeing the emptiness in things that you once put a tremendous amount of meaning in and then how do you move past that? I think you see some of that happening as well, especially with Dud in this episode. It does seem like uh, Lamar is kind of, uh, like, I think a lot of the, theory the theme of the show we talk about too is like kind of getting your duende back and it's like he there's something he's avoiding and which is why he's writing so much but because he's avoiding what needs to be addressed his writing is more drivel than i mean i guess at some point he was probably very successful obviously 
Um, but if that's what his what is uh, that's what his editor, not his editor, his uh, yeah, it's like his publisher or whatever his editor. Yeah, is yeah. criticizing it for it seems to kind the of agent, fit maybe, in yeah. that same uh, narrative that like you know when people avoid what they're you know what what it is that's illing them, they kind of continue further and further down that path, and, and that's why he kind of can't stop writing. Right, I think he says as much too. Like right. he's lost and all, and he just can't stop. That's all he does is write. It's so the writing opposite is of writing block, writer's block, right. right? Which is similar to what I think Blaze was going through. Not quite as epic, but um, you know, he just continued down this hole, hoping to come out the other side better. Very manic hole that they're heading full force down. Yeah, I think it's it's not a coincidence that they they end up in the same place, right? Right, they're just um, pairing, right? Yeah, the, well, although the one thing that felt like a a bit of a Jim Gavin punch through line in Lamar's descent was when he's yelling at his agent and uh, he's like, the plot's not convoluted. It's complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that seemed like the, like the, the, that was like the writer defense line. Like I felt like that was like a little, little too close to home. Right. Yeah. A little, yeah, a little like, like dig or a little, you know, self-reflection right there. Uh, and it was a really funny delivery by Paul Giamatti on that piece. Uh, it was like a moment of clarity in his delusion. <laughs> Because, you know, it's about the show, whatever. It was just funny. I love this theme, Nate, because there's so much of that. The show is always like to thumb its nose, play with, even adopt some of that gibberish, right? Or like like it, it makes fun of it, it adopts it. You know, it's talking about that in many different ways. But what I think is interesting about that is you never actually, even as the facade of the gibberish might kind of start to to, to fall back, it doesn't actually change any of the actions. In fact, you could actually make a case that everybody, you know, is actually ramping up their ramping up their uh, their energy towards this end. And I love the way you said, you know, you sort of have Dud getting that kind of moment of realization, but you also have Ernie, you know, kind of espousing that. Right? He's like he he, you know, it's actually he he his understanding of that is actually motivational. Right? Ernie definitely like if if he's doubling down on the idea of the scrolls and their existence and whatever they may hold that's not clear but it's certainly clear that he wants to get back into it he wants to get back on the road literally and metaphorically and that and that he's he's taking inspiration from ideas and yeah and that there was something damaging too about his hyper pragmatism pragmatism yeah it was like he was sort of trying he, he, he's been talking a lot about how he's made so many mistakes and you know it seems like he finally like kind of cleared himself of those charges you know where he's and he's kind of like it's 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 all going to be okay actually and so now he can kind of loosen up and then just go do something wild because even when he went with El Confidente the first time it seemed like he was kind of enjoying it to some degree but then he just sort of takes off like he had a huge regret right in the middle of the um tattoo you know so like yeah it, 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 well you know admittedly yeah. he might come to regret the full body <laughs> tattoo I mean, it wasn't the wrong you know like I, order at a restaurant right yeah i mean it's like 70 percent done though right. you might well, mean just go true. ahead and put the, the the rest of it on but yeah well the thing about i mean like ernie's pragmatism as you called it i think you see in last week's episode that it very i mean it was very much um like armor for him it's very much safety for him and as long as he keeps returning to this sense of pragmatism and the sense of order that he's created for himself he can avoid tragedy that he doesn't want to deal with and you saw and and you see that being stripped away over these past two episodes and and kind of culminating in this episode Mm -hmm. 
it's really interesting to me how Scott and Ernie, who are obviously rivals or whatever, and Eskimo brothers, um, if you ever watch the league, um, <laughs> but but they actually are two of the most similar characters, and they both, that, to your point, wear that armor of maleness, right? Be responsible, be pragmatic, you know, duties, you know. So they both, they both have sort of, and it lets them not be vulnerable. It lets them not really have know themselves very well. It actually lets makes them shell up. So I've, this week, I've been thinking about this for a while, but this week you really start to see, and maybe that's why the attraction for Connie or whatever, but. Ernie and Scott are very similar in many different ways, even sort of in their idea that either one of them would lead the lodge going forward, probably for similar qualities. And so you see that kind of that that shedding of the kind of BS uh, cultural male stuff is really played out on both those characters, which is its own form of gibberish. I I really like, though, on the, um, you know, sort of the traditional maleness end of things. I really liked how Scott's idea of... um sprucing up the lodge was this like internet jukebox that plays like new metal and like <laughs> multi-screen college football he's like what's not to like yeah the, the he's college just football really missing the point of the lodge and i mean it's hard to say whether it's he worse than shamrocks it. yeah it's worse yeah, they, yeah it's worse than shamrocks <laughs> but who what lodge member liked it the most only well, scott liked it right ernie oh, oh really did he say that well, he, he says it's nah. he says this isn't going to work, but then he's immediately attracted to it. He right. learns about his bet, and it's obviously a world he knows if he's making bets on it. So right, you actually right. it, it it actually is it was one of my points in their similarity. Okay. Right, and his gambling the twenty like, grand had something to do with that enjoying. Yeah, but anything. he has to he has to he doesn't he, win. He has to know college though. football, but he has. To, yeah. But my point is, he understands it's bad for the lodge. It's what right. would make them different leaders. But for him personally, his interest in what, you know, he's a, oh, this is a dumb idea. Wait, what? This is my game. Right. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. I also like how his gambling is actually part of that armor, too, where it's like he's not really taking chances. Like, he's not taking emotional risks. He's not taking personal human risks. He's just gambling on football. So he's got, you know, it's a... It, it is literally a gamble, but it's sort of an empty, meaningless one in terms of him growing or what have you as a person, you know, if that makes sense. In the way, he's, it seems like he's doing it to try to avoid some of his exactly. issues, but all he's doing is like, exacerbating I'll make it. this bet, but I won't make that bet, right. you know? Right, and that kind of vice, right? Gambling, womanizing, drugs and alcohol are kind of like the – they're the kind of like – Classically you know, the, male vice. Yeah, they're, right. all, they're part of that kind of makeup too. I love this. So, what was your what what was your favorite piece of gibberish this week? And then maybe we'll transition and sort of say, like, think about what you think the show thinks about its own gibberish. Well, I really liked when Lamar was reading. Well, he was speaking, but you know, sort of, he was doing the audio tapes that Ernie yeah, listens <laughs> to, doing them live. And when you really like hear him reading them and you see him reading them it's just like this stuff is terrible this is just like the worst like supermarket thriller nonsense but they're just they're held in awe you know and i really thought that was a great visual gag as well as you know showing lamar to be this kind of vulnerable yet ultimately sort of pretentious idiot you know 
There's a, a, a documentary called... Idiot's this, a little harsh, but... This, you know. Well, yeah, he's... He's, he's an idiot. <laughs> he's a genius, Nate. He's a genius and an idiot. Um, they, they very often are, right? Sure. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I don't want to get too deep into this, but there's a there's this documentary called The Staircase. I don't know if you've ever oh, sure, saw yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, where and the guy, like, basically killed his wife. Well, him. I thought an owl killed his wife. Yeah, right. Not to give too But much he's away. like this... He's that writer. Right, yeah, right. He's the guy who writes that, all those like you know trashy novels or whatever and is a millionaire somewhere you know so anyway it, you know definitely reminded me of that also uh who has some great gibberish obviously is janet well, right? I, I never tire of any of that kind of corporate speak i, I find yeah it's her, just the, the ted talk unreal on yeah, like steroids so, yeah. and uh yeah she's like the more that she can talk she's like she's like financing herself you know right. she's like getting credit for doing nothing and she's just kind of can, can just keep kicking it down the road as long as she can kind of come up with them you know i think it's also worth pointing out in this in this conversation about gibberish that you know when liz goes to find her to punch her was that this week or was that last week that was last week yeah well you know she's literally fake she's a hologram what she's saying yeah. can literally be seen <laughs> through Right. You can put your hand through it. That's how empty that is. Yeah. Janet gibberish is always top notch. But the Lodge's own gibberish, you know, I really thought Clara that was really interesting. I, I mentioned this a, a little bit earlier, but I loved how we just learned that for all of her true Lodge, Welcome Connie, Melinda, Blindfolded Hallways, is, is also just as clueless and and not only that is just is that that cluelessness makes her comp- competitive. I don't know if it's the right word. Make paranoid is the right word, right? So not that dissimilar from Lamar, not that dissimilar from Blaze. She's getting like that, like whiffing too much of the chemicals in the lab is making her crazy. Her paranoia and manicness is this hyper competitiveness against other black ops within the lodge, which is actually what is motivating her. So it's almost like the the gibberish of the lodge itself is also starting as it's possibly claiming another victim. Well, I was going to say as far as the um, the lodge gibberish in general, one of my favorite lines in this season, and it, it it's it's a little bit removed from this episode, but it kind of relates back is when Connie essentially says, I don't, I think this is all meaningless, but I like it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I kind of feel like <laughs> that, that that's a really essential aspect of the lodge and the show itself that like, you know, this is fun if you don't allow yourself to go the route of blaze, you know, like there, this is rich and it's interesting and the history is real. Presumably Harwood Fitzmerrill is real. Presumably much of what he did that's not, you know, that's that's short of discovering that the earth is hollow was real. Therefore learning about him and wanting to be a part of this polymaths existence is fun and it's good. And, and I think that that's something positive to be taken from this idea of the gibberish that even though a lot of it maybe is um, silly, it's still worth it for you if you're approaching in the right way. Right. I mean, like even to some degree, the, Watching television itself is sort of like a form of like you know people say escapism or something like that. But the, we but we love the escapism. We love the we love. The, she, she says I, it's all bullshit. But I love the bullshit. Right. So well, right. But I mean, she's clearly getting something out of it though too. Like it's not purely escapism for Connie. It's 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 her way of learning about herself and moving forward and all sorts of things. She's she's keeping it at a distance to a degree, but she's also using it for what she can get from it. Definitely. I mean, I think she kind of 
I mean, I think she kind of needed a break from Scott and Ernie, but she kind of intuitively just ended up in London in Lodge One. Right. And that's what put her back on the path. So she, I didn't, I, and I think in a way she's like kind of grateful for the right. lodge because it did that. So it, and she's okay with the idea that maybe there are mysteries, maybe right, they don't have answers. Right. I'm going to use them. How and I she, yeah, them. and she's a little bit ahead of the curve of the rest of the characters yeah. as far as getting back her duende Absolutely. and kind of coming back around. Yeah. She's also a great example of how reward you seek isn't necessarily like the you know an answer to Bitcoin. It, right, it, it is about curing yourself right. right and so she's she's and sort of aware around, of it yeah. right mending relationships what have you yeah nate you said something interesting and kind of connects to the last conversation is well we'll see we'll see if they land it right i do think they were kind of signposting that like hey don't expect magical answers don't necessarily you know we we may be a fairy tale but don't necessarily expect fairy tale explanations or answers so it'll be you know we'll, we'll see where this goes but i think they were kind of telling you a little bit hey we know there's some big things here but slow we're, we're gonna pump the brakes just slightly on thinking this is uh you know a pure fantasy right yeah well and and think about nothing that i can recall and you guys could correct me if i'm wrong here but nothing has occurred on the show that is beyond the realm of rational explanation. Not a single thing has occurred. We're into the second season. We're halfway through. There's all sorts of things floating around that are from this realm of the esoteric. But nothing has happened that mm-hmm. is like, how are they going to explain that? The, and so the, I feel like I, you know, I, from a production standpoint, from pulling back a little bit and looking at it at a meta level, I, I trust where they're going. You know, I, uh, I'm yeah. not too worried. Uh, yeah, they, they've demonstrated enough in good faith at this, to this point that I think we can be fairly confident that they're yeah. going to kind of land the ending. Yeah. And, you know, I think a fairy tale needs a, like a happy ending, right? And it doesn't need to actually – and that's what I was kind of trying to say is that it doesn't need to show receipts the right. way that Lost did. Right. Because you're, I think it's more about watching the characters on their arc to kind of coming around and kind of gaining what they were missing because everybody seems – that was what kind of ties them together is that they're all missing something. You know, so like if they can find out what it was that they were missing, then that's a huge gain. And that is the payoff. And I I mean, I'm sure if that's what it is, there's going to be some because it definitely seems from like chat rooms and Reddit or whatever, that there's a lot of people very heavily invested in the uh, mysterious parts of it. So you well, may, they're fun. You may lose. Those. I like them. <laughs> you, some of those may be, yeah. you know, might not be satisfactory right. enough for them. But uh, I, I, I feel very confident that it's headed in the direction I expected to which will be very gratifying awesome all right well let's move on to everyone's favorite part of the week and that is alchemist of the week i'll go ahead and start i'll get us jumped off here i think you have to go with janet at two levels which follows the themes that we've been talking about one at the very literal she thinks she's found the the arcane algorithm to unlock bitcoin and to save her fiscal thing so we get that sort of either real or imagined hope for monetary chemical change but we also start to see the real break in her and like the real person to emerge she admit there's enough of the she admits enough about her background to know that you know is she a piece of veal you know kind of a ivy league piece of veal and and at some point that those people usually come screaming out of that at some way and this liz is the un, is the key to unlocking that so she's we see the transformation in in her that way, and we see a possible transformation in, or at least what she views as her fortune. So with that, I'll give Janet my alchemist of the week. Bart, we'll let Nate surprise us with the third, so you go next. Okay, uh, I'm going with Scott. Basically, I think we see, you know, obviously goes through a great transformation. 
and it starts with alcohol. And as a guy who owns a bar, I always like to see people <laughs> getting transformed in a positive way through the use of alcohol. But yeah, no, I, I mean, like you were saying earlier, the show doesn't really create any um, villains. And But Scott has really been, in. it's been kind of painful to watch. I mean, he's kind of destroying the lodge, the, the vibe of the lodge, the, the TVs, the college football. Like, if there's anything worse than a TV in a bar, it's college football on that TV. I'm not a fan of either. I love sports, love bars, and I hate sports bars. But yeah, it, you know, I, it was really refreshing to kind of see that he, him be this guy that Connie fell in love with at some point, because he, he's definitely just been a giant pull up his ass about all things lodge-wise, and he kind of, you know, he literally is covered in the grease trap, grease. He has to, like, he, well, Gil, he just throws it out, but Gil suggests that you burn it, so there's like this, like, sort of burning, yeah. burning it down, Nate, oh, and... Nice. um and he's getting, he's shedding his old armor. He's got his new one. He's in, in, in a way, it's obviously it's the sovereign protector robe, but that is embracing the lodge for the real sort of lodge thing. And you know, and then in the end, he kind of gets to be able to kind of be friends with Connie, and it seems like they can be genuine friends, and he can be over her and be friends with her, and kind of still in, experience life with her. He doesn't right. have to lose her 100. percent He just, they just need to separate what they were doing. So yeah, so I'm giving it to Scott. I think I've been I've been kind of hard on Scott uh, this entire time. I think because I'm kind of taking what he's doing to the bar atmosphere very personally. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and turn around and give it to Scott. Great episode for Scott. All right, Nate, you have not shared yours in advance, so this is new to all ears. Scott and Janet make I think much more uh, sense for this particular episode. But the reason why I'm going to go with Dud is because I feel like over the course of this season where Dud lands in this particular episode, you see his personal alchemy come to fruition. And this is a guy who has been through so much. He was bitten by a shark at the conclusion of last season. He loses his friend in Ernie goes deep, deep, deep into the mythology of the lodge with blaze, all sorts. He gets married, all sorts of different things. (laughs) And he comes out the other side in this particular episode with I think a genuine sense of personal peace and he seems stable and he seems prepared to move on to the next stage of his life. In this particular episode, we find out that that stage is, uh, you know, selling plumbing supplies at a desk, but he seems very enthusiastic about that as Dud always is. You almost physically see him at the conclusion of the episode. He's looking at Blaze, who's kind of passed out in the back of the van. And he has this new concern for Blaze. You almost see things running through his head. He has perspective. And I think he is almost where uh, Connie is to a certain degree. He's, he's, he's kind of catching up to Connie in a lot of ways in terms of perspective and kind of figuring out who he is. We'll see if it lasts. We'll see if Dud is Dud. So <laughs> who knows where he leads. But that's why uh, I think his, his alchemy is... Uh, has brought him to a new stage, and you see it in this episode, so that's why I chose him. Yeah, he's doing and all he's, right for a, a guy that didn't go to a million-dollar pool school back east. <laughs> I didn't go to any yeah. uh, million-dollar pool school back east. <laughs> that was a great... That's a good, great. That was a great yeah, we don't, And he We don't choose that too often, so that's a good call. Yeah. And he literally gets blazed from mania to sleep. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right. That's very... I, I actually I, I, forgot about that scene. It was great. I like that. I like that as as well. A good answer there. All right, we do now. Doors are opening. Many doors are opening. So 
We'll take a stab at some predictions. You know, we're hit or miss. We swing for the fences. Sometimes we take layups. All the sports cliches you can jam into one piece of conversation. Bart, what is your what doors are opening for you for next week or going forward? I predict that Lamar will end his 10-year drought of ejaculate. And I think <laughs> he is going to... Um, maybe get back. Maybe he's going to ditch the uh, L. Marvin Mets and then stick with his pseudonym and get back into that. Um, you know, uh, his pseudonym is uh, Melania Delacroix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's going to get more back into his erotica. It's going to cure him, and he's going to also maybe with Clara or just kind of get back into the game of sexual relations with other human being. All right, Nate. What doors are opening for you? My prediction is that Clara is not all that she seems. And I recognize that this is a show where that's always the case with a lot of people and a lot of different things. But I am not 100% convinced that her relationship with Connie is not without uh, an ulterior motive, be it for herself or the main lodge. And that Connie's Connie's knowledge and Connie's revelations and Connie's journey, there's something to be gained from it. This doesn't make Clara a villain. It doesn't mean that, you know, but I do believe that there is a reckoning ahead for her and Connie and that it involves ulterior motives. Interesting. Following a theme of this, the show and even this episode and even our, this particular podcast, I am doubling down like a degenerate gambler on my prediction. Go see Bert. That, <laughs> yeah, right. I really, I'm in deep here. <laughs> that Scott and Connie will finish season two still married. And I'm not saying, saying from a technical, yes, they have not gotten divorce papers, but together slash married by the end of season two. I'm doubling down on that. There's not right a lot now. of time left. Well, so that that works in my favor. <laughs> right. But um <laughs> but that that means that means here, I'll give you I'll give you that we have to see a kiss or we need to see something that signals continued romantic coupling between those two. If it's if I will Moving take back the in, L, maybe. Yeah, I'll take the L if if what we have right now, like they're just sort of like these friends. I like Bart, I like your prediction that they did they their relationship transcends. So if we get a version of that, I'll take the L. So you, there needs to be some kind of signal of romantic coupling. But um, that's my double down on my prediction. All right, Nate, you are a regular, what do they call it, terrestrial, extraterrestrial radio host. Do you want to plug your uh, WFMU show and internet availability? Oh, sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I do a show on uh, WFMU out of Jersey City, New Jersey. It's called Burn It Down. It's on Tuesday nights from 9 p.m. to midnight, and if you don't live in the uh, New York metro area, you can listen to it on wfmu.org. And I have to admit, I got a few um, inspiration, uh, some uh, some song inspirations from watching Lodge 49. Oh, <laughs> so, Lodge 49 the, the themed show. That's great. Maybe not the whole show, but well, and I play a lot of Lee Hazelwood before I even heard of Lodge 49. So yeah. Well, uh, we're working on maybe. I think I I, I can say this. Uh, you know, we're working on a uh, interview of Thomas Patterson. So maybe we'll welcome you. But when we lock that in, we'd love to have you come back and be part of that interview. Oh, I'd love that. Thanks. Yeah. Cool. We'll see. I mean, we'll, we'll see if it happens. But if sure, it happens, sure. we'd love to invite you back. That'd be great. Also, Thanks, Nate's man. wondering if, if, if anybody wants to donate to the station <laughs> now would be. I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> well, 
Well, we do have a fundraiser in October, yeah. but, uh, but that's, uh, you know, I won't sully the good name of Lodge 49 with my uh, shilling. Yeah, we have thus far taken no fiscal uh, payment for the show. One of these because days, no I'm going offered. to donate some money, but I, I, I'm only I'm most breaking balls. But I, I don't I don't begrudge them looking for money at all. I, I and I, I well, I know where sense, to come knocking, Bart. I get the sense that a lot of times the DJs feel very sort of self conscious about it. You know, like everybody's trying to kind of like play it off just right, and right. it must be like the, the kind of the hardest part of your job. It's I not the easiest. I'll yeah, say that. yeah. So I, that's it why I had fun, to take though, the swipe. If you take the right approach, yeah. Hate the game, not the player. Right. There you go. All right, and so. Of course, you can find us. we got some special things. The Olivia Sandoval interview is already up by the time you're hearing this. Uh, we've got some other guests coming up we, uh, towards the end of the season, some really special guests, but planning on lots of fun things and, and maybe a bunch of postseason wrap-ups and, and content galore. You can find us at, port, at Pod49 on Twitter. You can find Bart and I's Twitter handles in the show notes. Oh, Nate, what's your Twitter handle? People want to yell at you? Oh, that's uh, Nate the K, N-A-T-E the K at Twitter. All right. <laughs> so add him if you so desire. We'll put a bunch of stuff in the show notes. And until then, we'll see you at Band Night. <laughs>